0: For 381 years, the islands of the Philippines were occupied by conquistadors, missionaries, merchants, soldiers, spies, and colonizers of every stripe. That's 381 years of history, and we're here to talk about the stories lost in between the cracks of the centuries. This is Occupy Pilipinas, Episode 8, Blood in the Water. For his campaign against the Sama Balangini, Governor-General Narciso Claveria ordered three steamships from the British and renamed them the Elcano, the Magallanes, and the Reina de Castilla. No description of them exists, but we can make some likely guesses as to what they looked like. In 1842, a steamship named the Montezuma rolled off the shipyards of Green, Wigrams, and Green at Blackwall in the United Kingdom. It had been ordered by the Mexican government to form part of their navy, essential in rooting out the last Spanish ships prowling the coast of the newly independent country. In an ironic twist, the Montezuma ended up being purchased by Spain in 1846. Renamed the Castilla, it became one of the empire's very first naval steamships. In 1847, it was the first Spanish steam warship to cross the Atlantic Ocean. With a close time frame and perhaps the limited budget afforded to a far-off colony, we can surmise that the first recorded naval steamships to go to war in Philippine waters would probably look like the Montezuma, And not have been the most advanced examples of their kind. Those kinds of ships had been launched in Bristol just five years before and were made entirely from iron, with a screw type propeller latched onto their broad underbellies churning invisibly under the surface of the water. No, the Elcano, the Magallanes, and the Reina de Castilla were most likely similar to that Mexican warship, wooden ships of sail. Outfitted with a single expansion engine with paddle wheels housed amidships that would have made for tough going in choppy ocean waters. Aboard the Montezuma, its engine, rated at 300 nominal horsepower, could churn out 21 strokes a minute, propelling forward a wooden vessel that measured 64 meters in length and carried eight guns. In short, it was a cannon equipped paddle steamer. And there's little reason to believe that Claveria's steam-powered fleet wasn't made up of those kinds of ships too. Nevertheless, the sight of the three of them sailing together would still have been something strange and new in Philippine seas. As they steamed to the heart of the Balangi homeland, the smoke that poured from their chimneys trailed behind them like a flock of hungry ravens. The three steamers were not alone in their assault. A large fleet accompanied them, including two schooners, three brigantines, and various brigs, tailboats, and even vintas from Zamboanga, carrying 150 armed men who were old hands when it came to fighting moros. The ships assembled first at Dapitan, where they met Claveria and a detachment of halberdiers Engineers and artillery. They stopped over at the Bay of La Caldera to meet the vintas from the governor of Zamboanga and finally arrived at the Balangini Islands just before Valentine's Day in 1848. The Spanish soldiers spent the next two days on recon. The island fortress of the Samo Balangini was actually four fortresses scattered across the islets. Balangini Proper, Sipak, Sungap, and Bukotingol. A Spanish sketch made in 1857 shows the layout of the largest of these raider cotas. Sipak was the headquarters of Panglima Julano Taupan, and it was large and well defended, jutting out like a spike from an isthmus ravine, ringed on one side by a moat. At its widest breadth, It measured more than 100 p.s., or almost 100 feet, protected by thick palisades of tree trunks and stone. Atop the walls was a barrier of tied sticks and sharp spikes of wood, ancient, deadly barbed wire. At these cotas, the tree trunk walls could rise up to 20 feet, reinforced in between by rows of coral stone stacked up to 18 feet high. The Sama also made clever use of the natural geography. The Balangingi Kota, for example, stood at the south of a narrow canal that was impossible to pass to anyone unfamiliar with its wildly varying depths, ensuring that it could only be attacked on the shallow side. Meanwhile, swamps surrounded the Sipak Kota, flooded muddy flatlands bristling with mangroves and undergrowth. In short, conquering the Balangingi would not be easy. At dawn on February 16, the low tide lapping the sides of their boats, Spanish soldiers landed not far from the fort of Balangini, the target of their first push into enemy territory. Since they had arrived, no prahu had sailed out to challenge the fleet Behind their walls, the Sama hunkered down, preparing for a siege. By 8 o'clock, nine companies were already assembled outside of the range of the Kota's artillery. About 150 fighting men, equipped with high ladders to scale the fortress walls. At Claveria's signal, two war steamers and a pale boat anchored off the fort's north side began firing their cannons. Cannonballs shredded the wooden palisades into splinters, but bounced off or buried themselves uselessly into the stone and tree-trunk walls. Still, the withering fire must have knocked out or cowed the fort's artillery, which was a paltry collection of native brass cannons and small falconets, with only one large 8-caliber gun as their only cannon worth a damn. All of these were strangely quiet in the ensuing battle. The ships ceased fire, drums struck up a march, and the Spanish company surged forward. It was then that they stumbled into, literally, a new insidious layer of the Sama Balangini defense. Deep, camouflaged pits, opening up into thick mud or bamboo spikes. Their advance slowed, but they pressed on. From behind the walls, the Sama fought back with rifle fire and then stones, nets, lances, and darts. The Spanish companies reached the walls and slammed ladders up against them. Boots began tampering up. The defenders reached out with forked poles to push the scaling ladders out of the way. Others hacked at the ladders with blades, but the Spaniards kept on climbing. Soldier after soldier swarmed up the ladders, finally reaching the inside. When the Battle of Balangingi was finished, 100 Sama lay dead, slain on the fort grounds, or killed while trying to escape through the mangroves or across the beach. Forty of the casualties burned to death inside their boats, trapped inside when the soldiers set fire to the ships. On the Spanish side, only seven were killed, and 50 wounded. An exultant Claveria gave a speech to his troops. Balangini, he said, fell into our power not without resistance, not without courage on the part of its defenders, but because your courage was greater. Climbing that infamous wall, you showed how brave you are and what we can expect from you. Honor to the Philippine army. Honour to the navy that prepared the victory. Soldiers, be ready for another victory. Those victories would come in quick succession. Two days later, the Sipak Kota, which was the main base of Jilano Taupan, as well as the largest and most well-protected of the Balangingi fortresses, it would fall too to the invaders. At the beginning of the battle, the defenders hoisted a red raven banner over the fort in defiance. Red for courage, the raven for death. But the raven would come for the Balangini instead. Learning from their first assault, the Spaniards dug trenches around the fort to better protect the soldiers as they laid siege to the walls. They also constructed sturdier ladders. Fighting through a hail of cannon fire and stones, clambering up the ladders, and hacking through the tangled snarl of sticks and spikes that ringed the top of the walls, the Spaniards fought their way inside Sipac. As the Spanish soldiers swarmed inside the fortress, it is said that the Balangini warriors speared their own wives and children. Better this death, they thought, than to be taken alive by the foreigners. The warriors then charged through the smoke and into the Spanish bayonets. 340 of their people would be killed, 140 of which were women and children. By February 25, a week and a half after the Spanish arrival, all four major forts of the Balangini had been captured. The victors' plunder included firearms artillery, bales of silk, silverware, gold bracelets, and Arabic prayer books. They also rescued at least 200 captives, both from the Philippine Islands and the nearby Dutch East Indies. These freed slaves cried for joy as they emerged from the forts. many of them sick and without clothes. 150 prisoners, mostly women and children, were also taken by the Spaniards. The invaders also chopped down 8,000 coconut trees, a major source of livelihood for the Balangingi. They burned down seven villages and 150 boats, as well as the fortresses of Balangingi, Sipak, Sungap, and Bukotingol. 450 more of the Samo were killed as the Spaniards cut a grim victory swath over the Balangingi's ancient home. With axe blade and lit torch, Claveria and his men turned the islands completely uninhabitable. The Governor-General returned from Mindanao a hero. With the smoking, stripped islands of the Balangingi behind them, the fleet sailed on to the islands of Tonquil and Pilas. There, the Spanish warned the people that a similar fate would await them if they ever took up arms against the Empire. They then made for Zamboanga, and in the town hall, the conquering soldiers were honored with a fiesta, and their dead buried with honors. When news of the victory arrived in Manila, It was translated into different languages and relayed to different provinces of the colony. A Te Deum Mass, which was a hymn sung only on occasions of public rejoicing, was held. When Claveria himself returned to the walled city on March 13, 1848, church bells rang up and down the streets of Manila. At three in the afternoon, He was awarded a jeweled sword and the title, Conde de Manila, Count of Manila. Astride a horse, the soldiers in his campaign marching behind him. He entered Manila in a grand parade and was met by a triumphal ark constructed by the army. The Governor-General would remain in Manila for one more year. The rest of his term would be devoted to less militaristic pursuits. He would set the Philippine calendar one day ahead because for many centuries, it had been set to the European standard. He would enact his famous legislation of family names. Each household was forced to pick from a list of 61,000 possible options from a giant book called the Catalogo Alfabética de Apellidos. If you've ever wondered why Filipinos have so many Spanish surnames, or why Cruz is the most common family name around, then you have Claveria to thank. The new Count of Manila finally begged to be relieved of his duties in the last days of 1849, a year and a half after his victory against the Balangini, Health reasons, he said. Shortly after his return to Spain, he died of a gallbladder infection. Of the three steamships that went to war against the Balangini, we only hear of the steamship Magallanes, which was fashioned into a transport for the wounded after the Battle of Balangini. It sailed to Zamboanga, those aboard surviving on rations of lard, meat, and rice, until they arrived in the Mindanao port. And then it passes on to the mists of history. Despite Claveria's victory in Balangini, piracy would not easily come to an end in Sulu. According to Stefan Amirel's Pirates of the Empire Colonization and Maritime Violence in Southeast Asia, half of all the Balangini warriors were actually not in the islets when the Spanish attacked as they were out on raids. This likely explained the ease of the Spanish conquest. In addition, Taupan, their leader, was able to escape the slaughter. He regrouped with his men in Tawi-Tawi and joined forces with other Sama and Iranun bands to sail out 60 to 100 Prahu strong in more devastating raids that terrorized the Philippines, Borneo, Sulawesi, and the Moluccas all throughout the 1850s. The Spanish spent the next three decades in more furious campaigns of war and repression against the Moros. But by then, the time on their own empire was running out. With a Spanish attack, The Balangini people were now scattered to the winds. The 150 women and children taken captive by the Spaniards were herded into ships and given meager shirts and shifts when they arrived in Manila, as Claveria considered it unseemly and dishonorable to present half-naked prisoners. These captives would later be shipped to Cagayan, where the provincial governor, Don Diego Roca de Togores, resettled them into tobacco plantations. The once proud and warlike people now became farmers in a foreign land. But a few of their traditions would survive the long march of the centuries. In the early 1990s, while doing research for her book, *Chris of Valor, the Samal Balangini's Defiance and Diaspora, Historian and philanthropist Tingting Cojuangco would write of a ritual for the sick in Pilitan Tumawini Isabela, passed down to these farmers from their Moro ancestors. She wrote, The ceremony is performed by two women who dance to music and chanting. As the ritual progresses, the women dance and move as though in a trance. They fall in a swoon, speaking in strange tongues. More dancing and music follow as they sway with a decorated toy boat. Then they go into another trance. The ceremony ends with the boat sailing off on the river, carrying food offerings to the spirits. It was a pagan ceremony, Cojuangco said in her book. A pagan ceremony adopted by the Moros performed among the descendants of the Sama people so far away from their original home. The centerpiece of the ritual is a miniature boat. In Cahuangco's pictures, the boat has one mast and is formed from strips of wood lashed together with string. It is but a dim echo of their ancestors' prahu, the feared ships that once ruled the Philippine Seas. The end of the age of sail and ore would mean the end of the Balangini people. But it would also ring in the end of the Spanish Empire. Half a century after Claveria's campaign, dark, raven-like clouds from steamships would again cloud the horizon of the Philippine seas. Nine iron ships from a new tribe, a new conqueror, To wrest the archipelago from the ailing grasp of the Spanish Empire, they called themselves Americans. This podcast was written, created, and recorded by Leo Mangubat for Summit Books, and produced by Kyla Diaz and Mark Delgado. For the episodes about the Battle of Balangini, Tingting Cujuanco's 1993 book, Chris of Valor, The Samal Balangini's Defiance and Diaspora, provided much of the battle detail. The website, Historic Shipping, as well as Paul Atterbury's article, Steam and Speed, The Power of Steam at Sea, provided the background for steam power in that time period. As always, the books of James Francis Warren, 1981's The Sulu Zone, and 2002's Iranun and Balangingi provided the socio-political context for the Balangingi. A few details have been embellished for dramatic purposes.